Let's take a second to hear from our friends, the Esselstyn family. Here now, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, along with Rip, Anne, and Jane, with a special invitation for you. Please join us for a night to remember in Washington, D.C. We are honored to be receiving the Midge Stuber Ambassador Award for a Better World at the National Press Club on November 7th. We're going to celebrate by joining Dr. Neil Barnard, Chuck Carroll, and all of our friends at PCRM for a live recording of the Exam Room podcast. And we would love for you to be there as well. So come on out and let's have some fun and reflect on this incredible journey. Woohoo! Coming up on the Exam Room. Each case is a little bit different. We have 21 subtypes of breast cancer. Some cancers are biologically like a little old lady, a couch potato, going nowhere fast. So we need to recognize which ones those are and be wary of over-treatments, right? We don't need to tap in a nail using like that big sledgehammer that tries to make the ding thing go up at the carnival. So when we think about how to treat and cure breast cancer, there are seven tools in our tool bag. Surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, anti-estrogen therapy, biologic targeted agents, and immunotherapy. Then there are my two favorites, diet and lifestyle. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Surprise, Arizona, Richmond, Virginia, and Guatemala City, Guatemala. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 86 of season 6, number 482 overall. We are going to think pink again today as we present the second of two episodes for this year's Let's Beat Breast Cancer series. As a reminder, studies have shown that half of all breast cancer cases are preventable and As she said on the show last week, our guest today, Dr. Christy Funk, says that true number could be as high as 90%. But we're going to talk a little bit less about prevention today and more about cures and treatments. Because the question at hand is, what happens if you are one of the nearly quarter of a million women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year? Everything can become so overwhelming so fast. And if that is the case for you, we join with you in the fight and know that today's episode is especially for you. Because today, we are going to be talking about the current methods of treatment and what are some effective alternatives that might be available. And guiding us on that journey is our friend, breast cancer treatment and prevention expert, renowned surgeon, best-selling author, Dr. Christy Funk. Now, again, we usually talk a ton about reducing the risk. And yeah, we're going to glance at that a little bit today. But the bulk of the show will be spent talking about these topics. How close are we to being able to say that we have a cure for breast cancer? 
and we're going to talk about treatment and how that has improved throughout the years. And then understanding the different types of breast cancer and minimizing the risk of breast cancer recurrence, determining the best course of treatments, which is an extremely individualized process. We're also going to weigh the pros and cons of current treatments that are available, the seven tools that we have in our tool chest right now to treat breast cancer, and what do you do if you have been diagnosed with cancer? And when you go down that path, if you are going down that path, if you are in that fight right now, you're not seeing the results that you want, when do you change the course of your treatment? We're going to get into all of that and skirt on diet and lifestyle, but this is really for all of us to put all of the treatment options on the table, offer some guidance and hope to those who are in the battle or have loved ones who are fighting right now. And so with Dr. Christy Funk, we all joined together again today to say, let's beat breast cancer. Dr. Funk, thanks so much for joining us again as we continue our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series. Jeff, thanks for having me. I love the Exam Room podcast. It's always fun to be here with you. And it is truly my delight, um, especially in the month of October. Obviously, you're welcome anytime. But I feel like with all of the focus this month on breast cancer, we really need to get this message out because it's never lost on me about how many of these cases are preventable. So today, Dr. Funk, we're talking about treating and curing breast cancer. And I'm curious, in your estimation, how much closer are we today to having a cure than when you began your career? No closer, not even an inch. We are better at expanding, at prolonging the lifespan. So in other words, our treatments are better. So people are getting cured more often. There are now over 4 million American women walking around who either have or have had breast cancer. And when I started my career 23 years ago, I remember quoting that number and it was about 1.5 million. So we are getting better at treatment, but that's the whole like aggravating part, right? The numbers are getting higher. The incidence is higher. The age at which women are getting breast cancer is getting lower. In fact, in August, 2023, JAMA published an article online looking at all of the cancers in the United States between 2010 and 19. Breast was number one, but the kicker was there was an alarming year after year increase in women under 50. So, you know, this, we have a lot of work to do. And a lot of what I like to talk about, as you mentioned in the opening, is prevention is maximal risk reduction. And we have so much more control over this disease than people think through diet and lifestyle. You know that I'm obsessed with the let's beat breast cancer campaign <laughs> so if you go to letsbeatbreastcancer.org and sign up for free it's free and fun i mean if you don't like those two things i don't think we can be friends so letsbeatbreastcancer.org sign up you will get a free e-cookbook and a tutorial on how to and why to eat a whole food plant-based diet, exercise regularly, maintain ideal body weight, and limit alcohol. These are the four-pronged approaches to beating breast cancer. And this year, 
we have hats. So get your swag. You can get the shirt I'm wearing, the hat I'm wearing that I now just took off because I have to talk about things like chemotherapy and it's hard to take someone in a baseball hat seriously when they're talking chemo. Um, however, please join the campaign. It's fun and informative and I think it'll really help your transition to a healthier lifestyle. But Chuck, as you were saying, even when people quote unquote do everything right, and more often in my experience, it's the crossroads. They hadn't been doing anything right because they didn't know they were supposed to because no one ever told them, including their own doctors. So we have this huge intersection, the BCAC intersection before cancer and after cancer. And that after cancer road will never be the same as the BC road. But I'm here to help you and encourage you and hold your hand as you get into that AC road to help you make choices that are going to minimize your risk of recurrence, but also maximize your joy and your fervor for life. Because you cannot do and think and eat and drink the same way you did on the BC road and think things aren't going to result in a recurrence. Now, you might think, that the things you're employing, surgery, radiation, chemo, antiestrogens, there's a whole bunch of Western medicine stuff we're about to dive into. And if you embrace some or all of those, you might think you're in the clear, but between 25 and 28% of all early stage breast cancer patients eventually recur stage four metastatic and do not survive their breast cancers. I'm here to bring that number down with you. Outstanding. And so that's the perfect segue to, you know, I would imagine after somebody gets that diagnosis, the shock wears off. There's just so many questions that they have. And chief among them is, well, what is the course of treatment here? So can you walk us through what the typical course of treatment may be for a breast cancer patient? Or is it really dependent upon the individual and each case is a little bit different? Each case is a little bit different. We have 21 subtypes of breast cancer, and then we have 21 million billion types of personalities and thought processes and feelings that all factor into the decision-making process, right? Some cancers are biologically like a little old lady, a couch potato, going nowhere fast. So we need to recognize which ones those are and be wary of over-treatments, right? We don't need to tap in a nail using like that big sledgehammer that tries to make the ding, ding go up at the carnival, right? That is over-treatment. And that upsets me because it has collateral damage every single time and it's unnecessary. So when we think about how to treat and cure breast cancer, there are seven pools in our tool bag, all right? There is surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, anti-estrogen therapy, biologic targeted agents, which would include drugs like Herceptin and immunotherapy like Keytruda. Then there are my two favorites, diet and lifestyle. We're not gonna deep dive into those today because that's what I normally talk about with you and many others, so you can Research that. It's all in my book, Breast the Owner's Manual, about how diet and lifestyle impact cancer incidence and outcome once diagnosed. But every once in a while, more often than not, once you're diagnosed with cancer, kale and meditation aren't going to kill it. So we need to 
walk on over to Western medicine and see what the offerings are, and then be wise and thoughtful and individualized about which modalities you plan to use. All right. So that's a that's a really important conversation and, and a, a delicate one at that, because there are so many of our viewers and our listeners who uh, very much would like to go with a 100 percent holistic approach to this um, practical, you know, medicine here that, that you you practice yourself here kind of tells you that, you know, maybe a blend between the two could be the most effective route in a lot of cases. But how would a person know whether or not completely say we'll start with radiation treatments how would a person know whether or not they would even be a candidate to opt not to undergo that like what are some alternatives that they may want to try and you know what is what is the risk there the risk is recurrence and it is largely a local recurrence local means in the breast or in the armpit lymph nodes so it's kind of all locally where the cancer began it then recurs in the absence of radiation your average recurrence rate is 40 percent at the 10-year mark kind of high if you radiate that 40 drops all the way down to four to six so radiation is highly effective at staving off a local recurrence However, there are side effects to radiation and there are limitations to it as well. If you have underlying significant um, cardio or pulmonary disease, there is some scatter dose radiation under the ribs, especially left-sided cancers are gonna to scatter to your heart. Both, both sides of your chest have lungs, if you didn't know, so you can always get some pulmonary issues. But they are few, there are very few. I mean, you have to have underlying disease to even notice, like say getting more short of breath when you walk up some stairs. So the bigger considerations with radiation, sure, it is toxic. Maybe you've already had it. Maybe you had lymphoma as a child and already had um, mantle cell radiation to your entire chest wall. You can't do external beam radiation twice in a lifetime. Your healthy cells can't take it and it will probably become mutagenic and create something called angiosarcoma, which is, a, like it sounds, a sarcoma, a bad cancer uh, related to having had radiation. Um, who else? Who else? Uh, implants. Okay. So if you have breast augmentation and you like the way you look, radiating a breast that is over an implant is going to result in contracture where the capsule around the implant gets thickened and fibrotic and it just looks a little bit more like a coconut shell stuck to your chest wall than you would like. And that is almost inevitable. I say almost because some people get away without contracture and or there are some tricks I know, but they are medications that have a whole regimen to reduce capsular contracture if women are getting their implants radiated. In the world of radiation, there are choices. So the tried and true is an external beam where you lay down on the table and um, you get hit with photons. Every day, Monday through Friday, it's either six and a half weeks long with 33 treatments or three and a half weeks long uh, with 18 treatments. But there's some nuances to that and new protocols happening. I have a patient now getting just a slightly higher dose and focally to where the cancer was for 10 treatments. One of my favorite types of radiation is intraoperative. It is literally, you're, it's one and done, just boom. You're asleep on the table, you don't even know what's happening. I go in to do the lumpectomy, then I slip in a little balloon catheter. I step out so I don't get radiated, but then we radiate through the balloon for 12 minutes. So it's this spherical radiation that is 
pounding the site where the cancer was. And this is highly effective. I take out the balloon, I fix up your breast so it looks pretty again, you wake up and two steps are done. Surgery, done. Radiation, done. And that is really cool, but you have certain people who don't qualify for it. So in order to do intraoperative radiation, one, you have to have a team that knows how to do it. Two, you have to have a ductal cancer, not lobular, which reminds me, you should probably just beep, 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 rewind a bit and go back to the basics of what breast cancer is in a second. Okay, but we need ductal, not lobular. It has to be under three centimeters. You need clear margins, which you're actually not gonna know until after this fancy surgery with the radiation. So in the event that your margins are not clear, meaning we have a little cancer potentially left behind in one or two or more directions, then uh, that intraoperative radiation is not the one and done we wanted it to be. But it does count for some radiation, so you get to do less on the back end. And you cannot have positive lymph nodes. It is a negative thing to have positive lymph nodes. I know, it's confusing. Positive nodes means that there is cancer in the lymph nodes. So that's a little radiation 101. It is obviously uh, multi-layered and lots of choices. So a fruitful discussion with a radiation oncologist to see what's best for you. Yeah, and you know what? Let's go back to what it was you, you were talking about there. You wanted to rewind and, and talk about what is breast cancer. I know that you uh, sent us a graphic. I'm gonna put that up on the screen there. So for those of you who are watching on Facebook and on YouTube, by all means, you're gonna be able to see this. So if you're listening to the podcast, hop over there as well, and you'll be able to see this graphic. I've got it up on the screen right now, Dr. Funk. Tell us, what is it that we're looking at? Great. So for those of you who are only audio, let me tell you, we're looking at a breasting cross-section and we see all of these milk-producing lobules that look like a big bunch of grapes. And then if you're holding those grapes by a single stem and look backwards, there's lots of tiny little stems going to each of the grapes. Those are the milk ducts. So there are about 100 in the breast. They all coalesce and 8 to 12 emerge out and through the nipple. 75% of all breast cancers begin inside the ducts. About 15 to 20% begin in the lobules. And for those of you quick at math, that leaves us with 5 to 10% of just weird stuff. If you take a duct, so we'll talk through the most common um, scenario of ductal cancer, but the same story holds true for lobular. But let's take a duct, transect it, and look through it like a telescope. For those who can see the graphic, we're now going to the upper right. And we've got a ring of normal cells. This is a duct in transection and we're looking through it like a telescope and we have a single cell layer of cells that are very orderly and they are very similar one to the next. One step down we have what's called ductal hyperplasia. This is when you get a new layer of cells but they're also pretty uniform and orderly. We don't care about ductal hyperplasia. It's kind of like saying hey you have a new freckle. It's not melanoma and I don't care. So it's just part of aging and we expect to see that Next up, we have atypical ductal hyperplasia. So now the new layer is angrier. It's starting to change its cell structure. It's growing without control or order. And it's just a matter of degree between atypia and the earliest form of breast cancer, one down on our notch there, ductal carcinoma in situ. So when there's enough of the atypical junk growing inside the milk duct to widen it by two millimeters or more, bingo, that's when the pathologist calls it breast cancer. Ductal carcinoma in situ is our earliest stage zero form of breast cancer because these cancer cells, which are cancer, are stuck inside an intact tube. 
and therefore they can never access lymphatics or bloodstream and spread. So they are never life-threatening and they never need chemotherapy and it is our easiest cancer to cure. So that's ductal carcinoma in situ. If left to its own devices and undiagnosed, oh, by the way, let me pause to say, if you look at the crowding and that there's more, oh, we stay on the picture. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we look at the crowding of the cells there on the ductal carcinoma in situ, as the central cells start to get like all these cells around it, they lose their blood supply, die and whoop, spit out a fleck of calcium. It is uh, these, this clustering of calcium tightly together in one spot on a mammogram, different shapes and sizes and densities of white and gray that raise the alarm for a radiologist reading your mammogram. They have to be like, why, why are all those cells so busy turning over there? And just like freckles, sometimes it's benign stuff. In fact, most of the time, calcium is just a sign of cell turnover and proliferation and benign activity. Every once in a while, though, especially when there's certain ways the calcium can look, we go like, why is everybody dying right there? And we need a biopsy to see, is it atypia? Is it ductal carcinoma in situ? Or is it just something benign but busy in the breast right there? When you leave DCIS alone or don't know about it, overall, it's a two-thirds, one-third probability of invading the duct wall or not. Only one-third of all DCIS will eventually punch through that duct wall and invade it. The breaking of the duct wall right there in your breast where this cancer totally, entirely started, I meant to say entirely, not totally. I grew up in the 80s in LA, what can you say? Um, so you break that duct wall, that's termed invasion. So when you get that dreaded phone call and the doctor says, I'm sorry, it came back, cancer, it's an invasive cancer, ha, huh, that word invasive is gonna send you spiraling into a, a bad place. But know this, it doesn't mean anything other than it broke the duct wall inside your breast. It does not mean it invaded your lymph nodes. It does not mean it invaded lung or liver or bone or brain. It just means that it broke the wall right there. And that's the term invasion. Okay, so that's describing the continuum of disease from normal through invasive ductal cancer. And we can go back to not having the picture up. And then um, there are... I mentioned 21 subtypes of cancer. A lot of that subtyping has to do with receptors. So whether the cancer cells are in the duct or outside of it, they can and often express receptors. We look at three in particular for estrogen, progesterone, and a growth factor called HER2, estrogen receptors. These are like little antennas that sit on the outside of the cancer. And when estrogen, we talk about sources, there are three main sources of estrogen for um, that when estrogen of any of the sources hits this receptor, it's going to send a signal to the cell to multiply and divide. All right, especially for a premenopausal woman whose ovaries are spewing out high volumes of estrogen all day long, this sounds awful and not uh, wanted. Guess what? I love estrogen receptors. We all do. And that is because they are associated with less aggressive and more curable cancers. Number two, it is an absolute necessary must-have to get your ticket out of chemo, or at least the recommendation for chemo. Um, and number three, aha, uh -huh, okay. So you're saying estrogen feeds and fuels this cancer. What if I get rid of all the estrogen so there isn't any fuel flying around? What if I physically block that receptor with like a drug or even a food, and then my own estrogen can't get in there? It's like a car in the parking spot that you want. 
but this time it's like tamoxifen or soy in the parking spot that estrogen wanted. What if you literally degrade the receptors off of the cancer cell? So I love estrogen receptors because there are three definite ways we can come after that receptor and stop the fuel. Progesterone receptors, same story, little thing sitting on the outside, progesterone hits it, fuels it, but we don't have any clear-cut foods and certainly no drugs that we aim at progesterone receptors. So just as a trend in terms of aggressiveness, know this, higher is better. So the more estrogen receptors, the higher the progesterone receptor, the less aggressive the cancer. Third receptor, HER2. This is a growth factor. It is um, highly, it's associated with a highly aggressive cancer. So if you could self-design your, your breast cancer, you wouldn't add HER2. However, uh, we don't get to choose. So if it shows up HER2 positive, which about 15 to 20% of cancers do, I have to tell you the good news. There is a silver lining. We have a drug. It is called Herceptin. It goes often hand in hand with another one called Pergetta. And these are missiles aimed at that HER2 receptor so effectively, so precisely that a mere 25 years ago, a HER2-driven cancer was up there with inflammatory breast cancer and triple negative as the least curable, most fatal cancer which we deal with. And now, if you have a HER2-driven cancer and go through these therapies, it is among the top most curable cancers that we deal with. That's how effective the therapy is. I would definitely say that qualifies as mega progress. That's pretty impressive right there. I like the way that you described that being like little missiles that go in there and hyper, you know, focus on on what they what they need to do. But I would imagine that there are a lot of patients who come through your doors, just as, again, as we said, you know, a lot of people listening or watching this show right now who really just, uh, you know, don't want to have to take a pill no matter what. You know, it, I guess it's like, when, when do you have the conversation with the person that says, look, you know, I, I understand and I appreciate where you're coming from, but really given your diagnosis, what the challenges that we're facing here, you know, I really think it's in your best interest to do this. So is there a threshold for somebody in terms of when they might want to explore those alternatives and, and when it is time to, you know, go hard with the medicine that is available? Whenever you have an estrogen negative cancer, so there are no estrogen receptors. Whenever you have a HER2 positive cancer, so there's a bunch of HER2 receptors. Whenever you have a high division rate, so this is not a receptor, but it is read on most core biopsy path reports um, by the pathologist. If you don't have a KI67 on your pathology report from the diagnostic core biopsy, you can request it to be done. I love KI67. It answers the question, hey, what percentage of cells under the microscope are actively dividing here? One becoming two. It's a percent. It can be anywhere from one to 100. And I think I've seen every single number. So it, it's out there. You've got these wickedly fast dividing cancers. I would say anything over 30% would give me pause for someone to just not do anything about the tumor. Um, or anything after lumpectomy, because that's a fast division rate. But I have tons, unfortunately, of patients 80, 90, even 100% division rate. What does this mean? 
the cell isn't actively in a phase of mitosis, uh, but the division doesn't mean you wake up every morning. Let's just use the example of 10% for easy math on all of us. Uh, if 10% of the cells are dividing, in general, it takes between three and six months for that cell to divide. If you are older, particularly postmenopausal, you're more towards six months for a cell to divide. And if you're premenopausal, it's more toward three months for a cell to divide. So let's go with January. You have a one centimeter cancer that you don't know about and you're 60 years old. In July, a one centimeter cancer that has a KI67 of 10% will be 1.1 centimeters. Okay, back up. Now it's January. We have a one centimeter cancer in a 40 year old but that cell division rate is 50%. Come April, that one centimeter cancer is 1.5 centimeters. That person worries me more if they don't get more aggressive at attacking this cancer. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. And kind of along those same lines, did the same principles apply when it comes to chemotherapy treatments, which we've talked about radiation, we haven't necessarily gone uh, directly at chemo yet, I would assume that some of these same principles apply here? Indeed, they do. So here are the four hoops that you need to safely jump through to land on no chemo recommended, even from your chemo-loving medical oncologist. So here they are. You have to have a cancer strongly driven by estrogen. You have to have, well, you cannot have HER2 receptors. Number three, you cannot have four or more positive lymph nodes. So that would be that the cancer got into the lymphatics of the breast and made its way over to the same size lymph nodes under the armpit. Four or more is a definite indication for chemotherapy. And then the final one is extremely interesting because it's called genomics. We have ways to interrogate the cancer and the oncogenes that are on or off, what genes it expresses or doesn't express. This is not an analysis of your genome as a person. Like, did you inherit BRCA or CHECK2 from mom or dad? No, this is the tumor's own internal genetics. And we can analyze it in a number of um, company tests. There are different companies out there. The two main ones used in the U.S. are called Oncotype and Mammoprint. Mammoprint looks at 70 different markers for recurrence. Oncotype looks at 21 fiber controls, so it looks at maybe 16 in total. But either one that you use or one of the more esoteric ones that are up and coming, um, whatever your oncologist which wishes to use. They get your core biopsy. They shove those cells into this little assay that analyzes all of the genomics of the cancer. And depending on what's good to have or bad to have and what your cancer you know, expresses or doesn't, it throws it into an algorithm and spits out the percent chance that your cancer will come back incurable, metastatic in the next 10 years. So hoop number four to jump through to safely avoid the recommendation for chemo is to have a low-risk genomic score, be it through Oncotype or Mammoprint or other. So we have to have estrogen receptors. We cannot have HER2 receptors. We should not have four or more positive lymph nodes. And we want a low genomic assay score. 
It seems like a lot of qualifications there. I mean, what percentage of cases do you think fall into that? It's, you know, that don't fall into one of those categories. I mean, there's so many there. I would imagine that the percentage is rather low that don't check any of those boxes. Actually, about 65% of cancers will check the boxes and just categorically not need chemo. The other 35% will have like half checks or total checks in these boxes. And then it becomes a thoughtful, personalized, individualized discussion of pros and cons for chemo for you. There's always a percent risk reduction of metastatic disease occurring. And that percent is extremely different in terms of how it's digested by different people. If I told you, okay, if you go through chemo, you're going to take your risk of recurring life-threatening metastatic lung, liver, brain, bone. We have yet to be able to cure that effectively. You're going to take your risk of having a stage four recurrence from 10% to 2%. Huh, 8% absolute benefit. That sounds pretty good. Let's see how I look bald. Although you could wear a cold cap, by the way, and then not lose your hair. I also have a whole discussion on workarounds for some of the side effects and collateral damage that occurs with chemo and other drugs. Let's say you have a, uh, let's, let's use the same number, 10% chance of it recurring metastatic. And if you do the chemo, it's 8%. Okay, let's, let's flip that on its head. I have a 90% chance that this isn't coming back. If I do chemo, I have a 92% chance it isn't coming back. If I do chemo, baldness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, neuropathy, potential leukemia down the road, bone loss, fatigue, mouth sores, I'm going to go with no. No thanks. But someone else might be like, 2%? Bring it on. Honestly, all personalities exist, and they react to these percentages differently. And a lot of people aren't numbers people. They're like, yeah, I just feel like I don't want it. Or I feel like I've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old and I just started a new job and I don't have time to die. Bring it on. Throw them all at me. Like, those are not reasons to do chemo, but they're emotional reasons that drive you toward, quote unquote, doing everything possible. And I can respect all of it. And I love talking to women in this maddening moment of like, do I, do I not? What if, what if not? I, I love this moment. So I'm happy to consult with anybody who needs some clarity on which path to take because it feels so do or die, right? And to some people, it becomes that. So it's a big decision. That crossroads is serious. And and let's say that they do opt to go forward with chemo treatment. What do we know in terms of how diet lifestyle changes there can help mitigate some of those unwanted side effects you were just talking about? So, oh, this is um, interesting in that, believe it or not, I don't want you to go crazy on the antioxidant scale during chemo. Why? Chemo is an oxidant. If you're going to go through the hell of putting that stuff through your veins, let it do its damaging thing. However, there are some things you can do to limit the collateral damage that occurs. And afterwards, we're going to become like antioxidant superheroes, right? It's only in this tiny little window of time that it is ill-advised to have 18 teaspoons of turmeric. 
one teaspoon in my smoothie, awesome. It's helpful. It's supportive of your normal cells that got a little hit by the chemo, but it's not overboard. It's not going <laughs> to, one teaspoon of turmeric is not going to outcompete Taxol, the red devil. Um, so judicious use of healthy whole foods um, and ramping up on some of our herbs and spices that we know are like anti-estrogenic, anti-angiogenic, um, the blood flow increase that cancer brings to itself pro-apoptosis, cancer cell suicide. There are a ton of these foods. You hear me talk about it all the time. And these foods go into every meal that I want you to prepare now and going forward. And But during chemo, we just don't want to do like an overdose. And you know what overdoses you? Not overdose like, you know, get sick and die, but too, too much, more than you could ever consume. Like let's just take a phytochemical sulforaphane and say you can't eat enough broccoli or broccoli sprouts to get the amount of sulforaphane that maybe you'll get in six capsules of pure sulforaphane packaged by your friendly nutraceutical guy, right? So no supplements that are like super physiologic doses of anything fabulous like curcumin, etc. Follow ECG, e ECF, epigallocatechin, EGCG. <laughs> um, who forgets the acronym but knows the whole word? Okay, so, so one, diet is supportive, but we can't go too crazy um, with super physiologic doses of supplements of otherwise lovely, good antioxidant-laden foods and phytochemicals, one. Number two, a study actually just came out in October 2023 showing that women who exercise during chemotherapy have twice the PCR rate, PCR, path complete response. This is the holy grail. This is what we dream about happening. When you have to do chemo and we choose to do it before surgery, you actually have a lot of tumor that we can see and measure. And then eventually with surgery, look under the microscope and see it shrink, shrink, shrink and disappear. PCR means you have a path complete response. Once the lumpectomy or mastectomy is done, the pathologist is like, huh, what cancer? It's gone. The PCR rate in women who exercised was twice as high versus the women that didn't. It was a randomized controlled trial just in October 23. So exercise is important. People are like, are you serious, lady? I am fatigued and vomiting up a storm. You know, be gentle with yourself. Maybe you can just go for a walk. That counts. That's exercise. So to the degree that you can, please do just move your body, no matter, you know, some way, somehow any kind of movement qualifies toward exercise in this case, right? The key is just not being 100% sedentary. Right. Absolutely. Gotcha. Just move your body. There's a song about that. So <laughs> the third one, all right, I'm going to get you in trouble with your medical oncologist, more likely than not. But you know me, this is super research-based, evidence-based in humans with breast cancer. So I'm not talking from Petri dishes. Women with breast cancer undergoing chemotherapy were randomized to fast or not fast during the chemo. So in other words, getting your chemo in that vein in a fasted state. These people had triple the PCR. What if we randomized chemo and exercise versus, okay, uh, you're, but my point is triple the PCR. And 
less collateral damage. This comes out of the work of Walter Longo. For those of you who know that name, he is big in the um, anti-aging space. He runs the Center for Longevity at USC, University of Southern California. Um, he is the creator of Prolon, which is that five-day fasting kit that you can use to eat and not be crazy hangry, but your cells don't really know you're eating at all. So you get a full benefit of a five-day fast as if you were just drinking water. They even did Prolon versus water and Prolon was more effective in the biomarker realm when they did blood draws to look at certain measurements like C-reactive protein, IGF-1, et cetera. A discussion for another day. Back to the fasting though, it was the exact same thing as Prolon. They call it Zentogen. It is not yet commercially available in 2023. However, I know everybody there and I can assure you it actually, Zentogen is Prolon. So I create a regimen for my patients using Prolon plus or minus to save money if they want to. We can have days of broth and tea or black coffee and we create a fasting regimen. Depends on your chemo regimen. Sometimes you get it every two weeks. That's called dose dense. Sometimes you get it every three weeks. Sometimes you get it every week. Taxol is often given 12 times weekly for three months. So anyway, I figure out your regimen. And basically, we alternate how long you're fasting before you get your chemo um, and give you some breaks. If you're doing weekly chemo, I'm not going to have you fast every week. Long story short, when you look at the human studies on fasting and chemo, as I said, triple the PCR, the holy grail but also the collateral damage is less. And really quickly, why this happen, happens is when you fast, you're not eating the protein and the carbs that make your pancreas go, oh, food, let's digest it, spit out the insulin. Insulin screams at everybody like, hey guys, food's here, like chow down, do your thing, whatever you do in this body, like do that, right? Here's your fuel, here's your glucose, and you need to use it or store it in the cell, get busy. Now you're fasting. Okay, there's no insulin. There's been no insulin for six hours, for eight hours, for 20 hours. Your body's like, hey, guys, shh, I don't know when this lady's going to eat again. Not sure what she's doing, but there's no food. So you need to calm down. Stop dividing so fast. That's the key. Let me repeat it. Stop dividing so fast. Just lay and wait. When she eats again, I'll let you know. I'll throw out some insulin your way. Okay. Two points. Guess who doesn't get the memo? Cancer. It's deranged. It's not following the body signals. That's the definition of cancer. It is a mutated cell that no longer is subject to the regulation and rules of the body. So this cell is like, and everybody else is like, Shh, it's a surprise party. And guess who's going to get the surprise? Cancer. The chemo is going to be like, that guy's moving too fast. It's gone. And this brings me to point number two. So point one, cancer doesn't follow the rules. When you fast, all of your body does follow the rules if it doesn't have cancer in it. So point two, chemo, super dumb, not smart, not aimed at receptors. The way Herceptin, missile to a receptor, chemo, no receptors. What is chemo doing? What is this poison in your vein doing? It's just flying around in your bloodstream, literally looking for one and only one thing. What moves fast around here? Oh, your hair, you, that grows fast, follicles, bald. Your nails, you clip them every week, right? 
brittle and wonky. Your GI tract, you turn over your stomach cell lining every 24 hours, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Your nerves, pum, pum, really fast at firing. Neuropathy, numbness and tingling in your fingers and toes. Okay. Cancer with a high KI-67. The higher the KI-67, silver lining for having a bad beep cancer. Quick divider, annihilated by the chemo. If you are fasting, when the poison goes in, your cells are quiet. So again, back to the work of Longo, back to the studies, less collateral damage. And by that, I mean less nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, less fatigue, fewer mouth sores, less neuropathy. Brilliant, right? Freaks your medical oncologist out for the most part. Sorry, I know. They don't know yet. But I promise you, I'm not steering you wrong. We need to be mindful of your parameters. You know what I mean? Like if you're severely underweight, maybe this is just a bad idea altogether. Um, we just have to be mindful of like your potassium levels and things like that. But um, it's not hard to do and it's free. Well, unless you buy the prolong kit, it costs a little money. But the point is uh, not eating is generally free. That's, that's one way to put it. Um a serious question though let's say that you know somebody has kind of opted to um not go through chemo or radiation they wanted to try the more holistic things maybe you know fasting is a part of it who knows whatever their their treatment plan that they crafted looks like um but it's you know that doesn't seem to be working as well as it should and let's say that the cancer is now getting worse, maybe it's spreading. At what point does that person have to have a, I would imagine a rather difficult conversation with not just themselves, but also with their healthcare professionals and that maybe it's time to pivot over to the things that we were trying to avoid in the first place. This is a really gentle and loving space that I love to invite women into because I am so non-judgmental. I you have probably not seen what I have seen. I mean, if you just fungating, bleeding to just yesterday, I got a phone call from a patient in that situation. But her tumor's out in the room, little alien. It, it, it looks like raw meat. And she said that that it was bleeding really badly and she got Kleenex on it and the Kleenex was stuck to it. And she doesn't want to pull it off because she knows she's just gonna start gushing blood again. And I was like, yeah, come to the office. Let me stop that bleeding for you. Um, tumors get really bad. Some tumor subtypes, right? We talked about there are all types. The fast dividers, the estrogen negatives, the HER2 positives. If you do literally nothing, like if your alternative approaches are here and there, I have people, they're well-intentioned. They want to follow that path, but even they fall off their little wagon and they're not exercising and they're not eating they're not even eating plant-based, let alone like raw plant-based, which might be um, the best choice in that moment. Anyway, on and on, right? So the tumor grows and it's burst out into the room and it's bleeding. It's like a, it can be, I mean, tiny, like a grape, just like a little ugly protrusion through the skin, or it can overtake the entire breast. Like there is no breast, there is no nipple, there's nothing. It's just a tumor stuck on there. Um, and I see it often, honestly. And People are so relieved that I don't even make a face. And sometimes these things smell like from outside the door. I already know because I could smell it. It's the smell of tumor. But uh, yeah, this face, not gonna, I'm not going to make a face. <laughs> I'm not going to judge you. Uh, we're just going to talk about what do you want to do now. And that is that should be a safe conversation for a woman. 
usually surgery is what you do now in that big, uh, you know, exophytic bleeding advanced tumor. No drug is going to shrink that down effectively. And it's an infection issue and a hygiene issue. So we just get rid of it. Um, but thankfully, most people don't wait that long. They just feel this little marble under their skin. They try their things and the marble becomes an apricot or a peach. And then it's still the skin is out normal over it. And it's just inside the breast. Uh, but they know it's getting bigger and they come to me and then we figure out what to do. So Chuck, what we haven't talked about. Did anybody re remember that I am a surgeon? We didn't talk surgery. Like this is my favorite topic, Chuck. We talked chemo, we talked radiation, we talked on, touched on anti-estrogens, and we did. Let's dive into it. I, we've got about 10 minutes left here, so let's talk surgery. All right. So surgery is usually step number one. We do neoadjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. Neoadjuvant is a fancy way of saying before surgery. Chemo is obvious. Endocrine refers to taking anti-estrogen pills. So you can do these things before surgery to shrink a tumor down so that what was a definite mastectomy given the tumor size can shrink it down to make a lumpectomy possible, which allows you to keep your breast. Another reason is you're a part of a trial and there's a new trial drug. This was like especially sexy and I would push people to please do neoadjuvant when they had triple negative cancers and immunotherapy was just being introduced on the scene. Turns out immunotherapy is a miracle drug when it comes to treating triple negatives. And even our early stage cancers get to have everybody with triple negative gets immunotherapy now. Back in the early days when the trials were starting, I was like, please go do the trial because I want you to have this immunotherapy. It's going to be amazing and it's going to make you have that coveted PCR way more readily than without it. But one of the trial re um, uh, requirements was that you had to keep the tumor intact in your breast, right? So that's another reason is to join attractive trials that require the cancer to be in your breast. Another good reason to do these treatments, be it chemo or anti-estrogen therapy before surgery, um, is just to give your yourself a chance to calm down and really contemplate your options without a sense of urgency. Like, I'm not doing anything. This thing is growing while I'm sleeping, and I'm not doing anything, and I got to make a decision. Just take my breast off. Like, whoa, I don't want you ever to make such an irreversible, huge decision in a moment of sheer panic. And doing something that we know is eventually needed anyway and will be effective at staving off tumor metastases and probably shrink this thing down a bit gives you that room to exhale and more level-headedly contemplate your options so those are three good reasons the surgical choices there's two ways to get a tumor out of a breast lumpectomy removes the cancer with a rim of healthy tissue around it you can kind of think about it although it may not be this big of a lumpectomy think about it like a hard-boiled egg don't eat that egg. Uh, we don't eat eggs. But a hard-boiled egg has a yolk. That's the cancer. The white would be the margin. So the margin of normal breast tissue is what we're after around a cancer to not have a positive margin, which means I slice through the yolk. There's a little bit of yellow at the edge of what I took out, which means there's probably some yellow, i.e. cancer, left on the other side, which is still in you, in your breast. So lumpectomy with a clear margin versus mastectomy. Mastectomy does not have to be a big, gory, demoralizing, horrific slash across your chest, nipple missing. It, pictures abound on the internet of particularly 
bad operations currently, but a lot that harken back to the 70s when we did something literally radical called the Halstead radical mastectomy in the 20s and beyond, you know, when we were really taking off the entire breast, the muscle, like it's skin on rib. We, only super advanced cancers end up with that right now. Um, everybody else, ooh, mastectomies can be actually, for some women, a cosmetic upgrade. Not always, though. Whenever possible and whenever a patient wants to keep her nipple, I'm game. I love nipple sparing mastectomy. It is probably my favorite operation to do with or without reconstruction. So let's just go first through the why the choices. So we've got three groups of surgery, um, lumpectomy alone, egg with the white, lumpectomy followed by breast radiation, of which there are several types, versus mastectomy. Okay, doc, stop talking. I just want to do whatever's going to make me live longer. Listen to this. In the 1980s, there were six huge randomized studies throughout the world throwing women into these three groups of treatment, lumpectomy, lumpectomy plus radiation, mastectomy. Now it's been 40 years. We know who lived, who died, who had to come back, who didn't. And this can inform you right now about your choices in a way that's very statistically driven. And it's going to blow your mind because in the 80s, the results of all six studies were basically identical. The results of all six studies forever transformed how we treat and cure breast cancer from a surgical perspective. Two shocking things. Shock number one, survival, all three groups, identical. Identical. So that's why I feel so confident in my patients who are like, I'll let you take the tumor out, but I'm not doing anything else you say or anything else anybody else says. I got my own plan. I just lump back to me. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> because survival is the same lumpectomy alone. You don't have to radiate. You don't have to take your whole breast off. What I care about most, sister, is that you don't die from this thing. Insofar as we can stop death, I want to stop it. And lumpectomy accomplishes that. But there is a but. What about local recurrence? Local recurrence is breast cancer, as I already talked about. Coming back again, generally it comes back within a centimeter or two of exactly where it was in your breast. So if you have an upper outer quadrant, cancer. That's why focal radiation, like the intraoperative shot I was talking about, works so effectively because it, it's going to come back in the upper outer quadrant if it comes back locally at all. Or it can come back in the same side armpit lymph nodes. A local recurrence is definitely disappointing because now you got to deal with this thing all over again. Um, except in rare instances, it doesn't uh, portend a worse prognosis at all. Remember, uh, all three groups had the same survival. So what it is is disappointing and nobody wants to deal with cancer again. Lumpectomy alone, back to the 1980s, had a recurrence rate of on average 40%. If you radiated, that dropped down to, as I once mentioned with the radiation talk, four to 6%. That's modern numbers. Um, back in the 80s, the recurrence was a little higher, but the radiation wasn't as good. Here's the key. Here is shock number two. You're like, I got A pluses all throughout high school, lady. There's no four to 6% recurrence for me. I want zero. Take that breast off. Four to 6% recurrence. Maybe three to five in some studies. Statistically not significantly different. In other words, in summary, lumpectomy plus radiation versus mastectomy, identical survival, 
identical recurrence with some very tiny uh, exceptions based on tumor biology. And if you choose to take an anti-estrogen pill, so tamoxifen, which is an estrogen decoy uh, that blocks the receptor, aromatase inhibitors go out into your fat cells. If you're postmenopausal, your ovary is done, your only self-created source of estrogen is coming from your fat cells. Aromatase is the enzyme in there making estrogen out of adrenal gland hormones. So you take an aromatase inhibitor. You might recognize names like Arimidex, Aromacin, Anastrozole, Letrozole, Vimara. Those are aromatase inhibitors. So you take those drugs and all of our recurrence numbers in this 1980s study world get cut in half. The 40% lumpectomy alone becomes 20%. And equally so, lumpectomy with radiation or mastectomy go from 4 to 6% recurrence to 2 to 3% recurrence if you add the antiestrogens, which also stave off a distant metastatic recurrence um, by varying numbers. But the numbers I'm giving you are for local recurrence, not metastatic. That number you get from genomics like Oncotype or Mammoprint. I know, it gets confusing. It's a lot. But there you have it in a nutshell, your surgical choices. Uh, there are three of them with the, two of them being lumpectomy, but one planning to add radiation afterwards. So, all right, now I'm hearing you. All things being equal between lumpectomy and radiation versus mastectomy, why would a woman take one or both breasts off if she doesn't get any points at all? No survival points, no local recurrence points. Like, why? I'm going to give you four reasons. One, gene mutation. So if you have BRCA, for example, and you have breast cancer, on average, there's a 65% chance you will get another breast cancer in your lifetime. It is not a recurrence of this one, it is a new one. So gene mutation carriers, depending on their age and their own mindset about things, they're like, you know what, I, I, would, I didn't know I had this gene or I knew and now I got bitten by it, so I'm done. Take both breasts, please. Next person, big tumor, small breast. Sometimes we can shrink the tumor down using alternative strategies, using antiestrogens, using chemo. I talked about neoadjuvant therapies. One of the reasons for that is to take a big tumor that would, yeah, you could do a lumpectomy, but then you'd be leaving like this banana rim of breast behind and then you should radiate it. And it just will look prettier to do a mastectomy and put in a breast-shaped implant or use your own body fat and tissues or go flat and fabulous. But it will look a little weird to do a lumpectomy because the tumor is so big. Okay, that's person two. Person three is like, ooh, you know what? I love that four to 6% number that you got going on there, but ain't no way, no how I'm doing radiation. Maybe they've had it before. Maybe they're just categorically opposed to it. Um, uh, maybe they don't live in an area that readily offers it. They got to drive four hours to and from every day. You don't want radiation, whatever your reason, but you don't want a 40% recurrence, even 20 with the pills, mastectomy is an excellent choice. You get that low number, no radiation needed. With some exceptions. I mean, can I stop having exceptions? People who choose mastectomy will still be advised to have radiation to their chest wall in lymph nodes after mastectomy. For sure, if they have a tumor over five centimeters, an invasive tumor, DCIS, you get away with. D invasive tumor over five centimeters, positive margins, which sometimes I just deal with directly. Like if your skin margin is positive after a mastectomy, rather than radiate, if I know exactly where that is, I'd rather just take off that skin than have you get radiation, but that's not always possible. Four or more positive nodes is an absolute for 
radiation, one to three positive nodes after mastectomy is wiggle room for discussion of pros and cons. And the final one is called extensive lymphovascular invasion. The lymphatics in the blood vessels that are in all the other tissue that's not the actual breast tissue feed and nourish the skin too. So it is highly possible if there was a ton of tumor like the 405 freeway in LA, like just tumor everywhere in these tubes, that it's also in the lymphatics and the vessels that have been left behind on purpose to nourish and keep the skin alive after mistake. So there are caveats to not needing radiation, to needing radiation after mastectomy. So not wanting radiation, you should have also, you should know like if you're going to fall in that category anyway. And finally, the most common reason for which I do mastectomy, a woman wants it. She's like, you know what? I'm not a numbers person or I get it. I don't have a gene, but my mom had it. My sister had it. Now I have it. I don't, I don't want these things. They're trying to kill me and I don't watch them. Or she is at baseline, like an anxious person. And she can admit like, you know what? I hear you, but showing up every six months for a mammogram, an ultrasound, an MRI, you to examine me, a biopsy, every time there's a blip on the radar, like, ooh, I'm having a panic attack just thinking about that future for me. If you take these off, do I have to do any of it? Not really. I do chest wall exams after mastectomy every six months for five years, and I ultrasound the armpit to make sure there's no node happening deeper than I can feel, but that's it. There are no squishy mammograms. There's no MRI. Um, and so that can really emancipate a woman and make her feel like she's the conqueror over this disease. So there are solid reasons to choose mastectomy over lumpectomy. And those are the main ones. Boy, there is a lot to talk about. There a lot of numbers, certainly a very personal decision, no matter what. And so I wish that we had more time to unpack that a little bit. But the numbers, again, that I want to kind of wrap up today with go to what it was we were talking about right at the beginning of the show. And that is the fact that half of all breast cancer cases undisputedly are preventable. And in your estimation, perhaps even as many as 80 to 90% of the cases. And that is what is at the heart of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign this year and every year. I love the hat. You rock it so well. Let'sBeatBreastCancer.org is the website to visit to get your hat. Take the pledge. Learn all about our four prongs, our four-stepped approach to preventing and beating breast cancer. Absolutely get involved there. The free e-cookbook. And speaking of books, you got to go if you don't already have it get dr funk's book breasts the owner's manual there's a link to pick up your copy right now in the show description and in the episode notes and of course all of this information and a whole lot more you can find at pinklotus.com as well dr funk's website there so dr funk thank you so very much for your time and walking us through this is definitely a different approach than what we usually take on the show but i love that we're getting all of the information out there because it's so critical to paint the entire picture of what a breast cancer battle looks like and i think you did a phenomenal job doing that with us today thanks it was my pleasure bye everyone Let's beat breastcancer.org is the place to go to sign up, take our pledge, get the free e-cookbook and learn more about the four steps, our four prongs to lower your risk. Certainly 50%, no doubt about it. But again, as Dr. Funk said, potentially up to 80 or 90% of cases are preventable. 
Now look, here's a little bit of a silver lining if those prevention statistics aren't enough for you. The five-year survival rate right now for breast cancer stands at nearly 91%. 91%, that's really good. But if you take Dr. Funk's advice and you weigh out your plan of action, then it seems like those odds can increase even a little bit more, go a little bit higher. So the power remains in your hands. And we all encourage you to seize it and be the supreme fighter that you can be, the supreme fighter that you are. Be a warrior and be an example for the millions of others who may find themselves in your shoes in the future and those who are today walking right beside you in the fight. And please know that we also stand with you. We are right by your side. And did you know, speaking of standing together, did you know that we have held almost 50 Let's Beat Breast Cancer rallies across the country this year? And there's still time for a few more as well. We still have some to go. Let'sBeatBreastCancer.org has all of the dates and locations so you can participate in a rally near you. And also there is our Let's Beat Breast Cancer shop. So you can go there and pick up one of those swanky pink and white Let's Beat Breast Cancer hats that Dr. Funk was wearing on the show today. This hat will make anybody look like a million bucks. No lie. This is what they would call a trucker style hat. And I don't care if you're 80 years old or you're eight years old, if you're a man, if you're a woman, it doesn't matter. These hats will make you look like a million bucks. They are sharp as a tack. And you can support us by picking up your own hat right now and our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Again, at letsbeatbreastcancer.org. And as you're on the interwebs, hop over to pcrm.org events. That's where you're going to go to get your tickets for another unforgettable event. This time, our live recording of the exam room with the entire Esselstyn family at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn will be there, Rip will be there, Anne and Jane will all be there along with myself and Dr. Neil Barnard and hundreds of exam roomies as well. And that night, we are going to be rocking the red, as the Washington Capitals here in town would say. We are going to be rocking the red because we want everyone there to wear red to show their appreciation for everything that the extraordinary Esselstyn family has done to increase awareness and understanding of heart health, keeping your heart beating as strong as ever well into your golden years. You know, we've been talking about preventing breast cancer, but when it comes to heart disease, that is the leading cause of death in the United States and so many other countries. And it is also one of the most preventable diseases on the planet, bar none. And the Esselstyn family has been beating that drum for generations. And it is time now that we say thank you for their tireless work. And that's exactly what we are going to do on November 7th at the National Press Club when we sit down with Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Rip, and Ann Jane to say thank you for all of their tireless efforts as we record a very special episode of The Exam Room. So pick up your tickets right now. Limited seats still available, pcrm.org events, or click that link in the episode notes. 
And before November 7th, on Saturday, October 28th, I'm headed home for the Hampton Roads Veg Fest in Chesapeake. That's going to be 11 to 5 at Chesapeake City Park. I'm actually going to be speaking around 2.15. And you can get all the details on the Hampton Roads Veg Fest at HamptonRoadsVegFest.com or click the link that is in the episode notes. I cannot wait to go home to Hampton Roads. I was born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia, and this is just going to be a thrill for me to go home and talk a little bit about health. Just can't wait to inspire and educate and meet some of my my hometown exam roomies. That's going to be a lot of fun. So hope to see you on Saturday, October 28th for the Hampton Roads Veg Fest at Chesapeake City Park. And coming up on the next show, last bit of housekeeping here, we are going to be doing a diet comparison with Dr. Neil Barnard. He's making his triumphant return to the exam room live. We're going to be comparing vegan and Mediterranean diets head to head. And what you may not yet know is that our research team actually just picked up a big award for our research on this very topic. We're going to be getting into their results, what we've learned, and which diet is superior, not just for weight loss, but for your overall health. So we're going to dive into that with Dr. Barnard here on Wednesday doing it live noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook, or you can catch the replay right back here on the podcast first thing on Thursday. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows, please go ahead and do that now and also leave a five-star rating. That's how we can continue to climb the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb in the rankings, the easier it becomes for people who are in the fight, whether it be heart disease or breast cancer or Alzheimer's. We want to get them this information that can truly potentially change their life. All you need to do right now takes two seconds follow or subscribe and leave that five-star rating and a nice review. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Christy Funk for being here once again as we conclude our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for this year. Such a great episode. I know it was a bit of a departure from what we usually do, but I feel like it's so important to put all of the options on the table so people really understand the full picture. And that way, if the unforeseen strikes, they are armed with as much knowledge and information as possible to make the best decision they can make for themselves to beat breast cancer. And that's what this is all about. So thank you, Dr. Christy Funk, for being here. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.